Well, if you would, let's open up together to the book of Romans in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. As you're turning there, let me say a special word of welcome to our visitors who are with us this morning. Uh, we're very thankful to see you, very glad that you are here uh, if there's any way we can serve you, uh, please be sure to let us know, and we certainly pray uh, that you will be blessed by your time worshiping with us this morning. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to, uh, to use one of those in the seats in front of you, and if you choose to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 948. Blessed be the tie that binds. What does it mean to bind something? Uh, one dictionary definition says that the word bind means to tie, to, to fasten something tightly, uh, to tie up, to fasten together, to hold together, to secure, to attach to cohere, to cause, to cohere in a single mass. Uh, the dictionary I looked at gave two examples. The first was bundles of logs bound together with ropes. So the tie that binds the logs together is a rope. Uh, the other example was from cooking. It said, mix the flour with the coconuts and enough egg white to bind them. So the tie that binds the flour and the coconut together is egg white. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We sing that hymn often around here. We sing it Sunday night after the Lord's Supper last week. Let me ask you this question. At bottom, what is the sacred tie that binds us together as Christians? Uh, most fundamentally, at the deepest level, what is that special bond that connects the children of God both around the world and within a local church? Mount Hermon, look around the room this morning. Just, just see each other. Look, look around the room. What, what unites us? What, what joins us together? What permanently and unbreakably attaches us to one another? Well, that's the answer we're going to see this morning. So look with me at Romans 12. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 8. And then we're going to focus on verses 4 and 5. But starting in verse 3, I'll remind you, this is not some regular book we're reading. This is the very Word of God. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's get our big picture. So Romans 1 through 11 has taught us the amazing mercy of God. Paul has shown, I think, more clearly than anywhere else in all of Scripture, just how sinful we are and how desperately we need to be saved. But he has also shown more clearly than anywhere else the wisdom of God in providing a way of salvation for sinners. In Romans 1 through 11, we learn how Christ died for us even while we were still sinners and enemies of God. We saw how Christ was the second Adam who lived the perfect life we have failed to live in our place. We saw how God, through Jesus, has adopted us as his children, given us the Holy Spirit, given us the most precious and powerful promises in the world. And Paul ended those chapters by helping us see God's great plan to save people from every nation so that his mercy is put on grand display. And then we get to Romans 12, and what do we find? Now, In light of such mercy, Christians are to live as a faithful, redeemed people. We are to live lives of worship to God, not the way we used to live, not following the patterns of this world. No, we're to be different. Now, Herman, people should see that we are different. Our values are different, our priorities are different. We make strange decisions in the eyes of the world. We get this way as we continue to learn from God's truth and His truth transforms us. And here is the banner that Paul has put over the entire Christian life in verse 3. It's the banner of humility. If we are to live for God Think rightly. Love other people well. Here is where it begins with humility. We must see ourselves rightly. We must see ourselves according to what really matters. How is our walk with Jesus? The more we see that we are nothing without Him, the more that we see that we have to depend on Him and Him alone for anything of eternal value, the stronger we really are. So now, how do verses 4 and 5 connect with verse 3? So after calling us to humility, humility, he says, why does Paul go into this statement about the church? Well, I see three ways that these verses connect. So number one, it is humbling to remember that we are part of a larger body. Uh, Paul is calling us to to humility. Here is a truth that helps us be humble. This is good for us. I am not the kingdom of God. Uh, You are not the kingdom of God. I am not the bride of Christ. And you are not the bride of Christ. It is us together. 
along with all those saved by the blood of Jesus from every tongue, tribe, and nation. These are the kingdom. These are the bride. I am not thinking about myself soberly or rightly if I am not seeing myself as part of the larger whole. Did Jesus die for me? Yes, but he did not die for only me. I've heard preachers say, if you were the only person on planet Earth, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have still died for you. Does it upset you to know that's not actually in the Bible? It's completely hypothetical. It's unreal. It's an imaginary situation. But here's what is in the Bible. Jesus came and ransomed for himself a people. Jesus came and died to purchase for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I love the picture Paul uses in Ephesians 2. He says that we're all like a great temple that God is building. And each of us is a different stone in this temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, and the rest of us as Christians are built on top of them, finding our place so that this whole structure is supported and made complete. So we each have our own place to fill. Every stone is important. Our individuality is not lost, but one stone by itself is not the temple. One stone laying off on the ground by itself, it doesn't make anything. It's God's people united together, joined together by the mortar of God's spirit and common faith and Christian love. This creates the temple. The Bible uses lots of pictures to teach this. A temple, a kingdom, a bride. No one picture can can fully capture the glory of the body of Christ. But clearly, this is the picture that Paul thinks comes the closest because it's the one he seems to use the most and enjoy the most. It is this one in Romans 12, the church as a body. Uh, Each of us is important, just like every part of your physical body is important. But a finger by itself is useless. Uh, Christ saved us to bring us into a community of his people. And it is in that community that we find our place and our opportunities to serve him. Sadly, over the years, we've had many people visit this church and then move on. And when we've checked in with them later, one of the common themes that we've heard time and time again is, well, I believe I can follow Jesus without being connected to a local church. Friends, that idea is unbiblical. And it is a lie of the devil. It, it flies in the face of Jesus' own teaching, his own example with his disciples. It flies in the face of the book of Acts. It flies in the face of the writing of the apostles. And it also misses the point of what Jesus is doing in our lives. To try and follow Jesus apart from finding your place in a local church is to resist the Spirit. It's to go against the Spirit's will and intention for your life. And it is to miss out on much glory and much growth. 
we need a healthy dose of humility. Well, here it is. I am not the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ. Similarly, I see a second connection between verses 4 and 5 and verse 3. Namely, it is humbling to remember that I need other people. It's humbling to remember that I need other people. Uh, Paul says we are individually members of one another. He then goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. And the implication is that I need what Christ is doing through other people. I need what Christ is giving me through other people. There are important gifts from my walk with Jesus and my spiritual growth that I am supposed to receive through my brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't just zap us with spiritual growth. Zap. No, that's not how it works. He works through his spirit, and he works through his spirit working even in other believers to help us grow. Here is a truth that ought to humble us. I need you. And, and we need each other. And it is together in our lives together that Christ works to grow us all up. And then third, the other connection I see between verse 3 and verses 4 and 5 is this. Only through humility can I rightly fulfill my calling in Christ's church. So I have a role to play. You have a role to play. Maybe you're a finger. Maybe you're a freckle. I'm probably a nose hair or something. But we we each have a role to play. And as we saw last time, it is when we act in humble faith that God works through us to bless our brothers and sisters. So if I come into this church and I say, yeah, I'm a part of this body, but I take pride in myself, I think this church would be nothing without me, and I, and I act in arrogance. Well, guess what? God's not going to bless that. He opposes the proud. If I serve this body in pride, I may cause more harm than good. But if I'm seeing myself rightly, if I see myself as a jar of clay, not of silver, not of no dirt, a jar made of dirt, If I'm living in that kind of humility, then God can work through my feeble efforts to bless. God takes our measly few loaves and our fishes and he multiplies it. And he does so much more than we could ever do in and of ourselves. So verse 3, be humble. Verses 4 and 5, because you have people to serve. You have people who are connected to you, people who are dependent on you, people who need the grace of God that God is giving them through you for the sake of others in this room. Be humble. Now this brings us to our original question. What is the tie that binds us together? And we see the answer in verse 5. What most fundamentally connects us as Christians is our common union with Christ. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Friends, this is one of the most important phrases in all of Scripture. 
It's just two words. There's little two little words. In Christ. But note Paul's argument here. Christians, though many, are united together as one body. How? What is the mortar that brings us together? What is the tie that binds us together? It's in Christ. And that phrase is found 89 times in your New Testament. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? In Christ. You were chosen before the foundations of the world. How? In Christ. Over and over and over again, this phrase is used to show that we are connected to Christ. And it is through Christ that every blessing of God comes to us. Sadly, this truth of Christ's union with believers goes largely unpreached in our day. Uh, This is even more regrettable when we consider John Murray's statement that our union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. If you want to sum sum up in two words what the Bible has to say about salvation, here's how you can sum up salvation in two words. In Christ. In Christ. Sure, I'm going to move to this because this thing keeps rattling and making noises on my ears. Not only is our union with Christ central to the whole doctrine of salvation, but the doctrine of our union with Christ is foundational to who we are as a church. And that's Paul's point here. What binds the millions of individual Christians throughout the centuries and throughout the world into one body is this common bond. We're all united to each other because we're all united to Christ. So what does it mean to be united to Jesus? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, there is glory here. But you've got to turn your brains on. Which is not easy when you had to spring forward last night. So try your best. We're going to try and worship the Lord with our minds. Love the Lord our God with our minds. And see the glory of what it means to be in Christ. So the Bible uses this idea of being in Christ in two ways. There's a legal sense and there's a spiritual sense. A legal sense and a spiritual sense. We are legally united to Christ in the same way that we are united to Adam. Adam was our representative in paradise. He was our, what we might call our federal head. As the head of all humanity, he represented us before God in the garden. Adam's rebellion against God was not his alone. It was the rebellion of all humanity in him. So we saw back in Romans 5, Paul says that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell, we fell. In Adam, we were ripped out of communion with God. Adam was our legal representative in the garden. What he did, we did. Well, Jesus is the second Adam. He was appointed by God before the foundation of the earth to be the head of the church, the called out ones. Jesus was called to represent his people 
in his life and his death and his resurrection. So, so let's see this. Four ways that Christ was our legal representative. Number one, he represented us in his perfect life. Though we are sinful, though we have not attained the perfection that God requires of us, Jesus lived for 33 years as the spotless Lamb of God on our behalf. His constant faithfulness to His Father attained for us the righteousness we could not attain on our own. So if you are God's child, Christ's righteousness attained as He lived representing you is now accounted to you when you believe. Uh, Though our report card of righteousness contained all failing grades in every area, We had all F's on our report card. Now, Christ has accomplished all A's, and His A's are credited to us. Consider what this means. It means that when God looks at us, He does not see us in our sins and our weaknesses. Rather, when God looks at us, He sees us in the glorious splendor of Christ's righteousness. God delights in us. We are beautiful in His sight. We do not have to earn God's favor. Christ has earned it for us. And when we believe on Him, we are dressed in His righteousness. Number two, Jesus represented us in His death on the cross. So when Christ experienced the wrath of God, He experienced it in our place as our representative. So just as God counted Jesus' righteousness to us and treats us as if we had lived the perfect life that, we, that Jesus lived, so also God on the cross treated Jesus as if he had committed all the sins that we have committed. God credited our sins to Christ on the cross and then gave him hell. That's what he experienced, the very wrath of God for our guilt. So this is the sacrifice our Lord made for us. He bore the wrath of God for us that our sins would be forgiven. This is why there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. How can there be? He already bore the condemnation. But then number three, we don't talk about this one as much. Jesus also represented us in his resurrection. Jesus didn't just live as our representative and die as our representative, but he rose as our representative. When Jesus conquered death, he did it for us. His victory over death was our victory over death. And therefore, since the grave could not hold his body, guess what? The grave will not hold yours either. There is a day of resurrection coming. As Christ's body was raised from the dead, so shall our bodies one day be raised. And then fourth, Jesus represented us in his exaltation. This is mysterious. This is, this is interesting and strange that even now Christ is our representative in heaven. And listen to how Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2 verse 6. Paul says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again. So just as Jesus is with us here on earth, there is a sense in which you are with Jesus in heaven. 
He is there as your representative and you are united to him. He is the first fruit of us all. His ascension into heaven guarantees that the rest of his people will join him there. Our union with Christ means that where he is today, we will one day be in the very glorious presence of God. So in all of these ways, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus did all of that as our legal representative. And we are united to him in the courts of heaven. So what, the, what he did, he did on our behalf. But if all that was not wonderful enough, then there's our spiritual union with Christ. This is the astounding reality that Christ has connected himself with us in a real and vital way through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us and communicates to us the blessings of Jesus. I've heard it said that it's like there's an invisible umbilical cord that stretches from us up into heaven to the Lord Jesus Christ, through which he gives to us all that we need every moment for spiritual life and godliness. Jesus himself used probably a better illustration, the illustration of vine and branches, right? That he is the vine and that we are the branches and that that he provides life and nourishment to us. But how? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we are spiritually united to Christ. The Spirit that is in us is the Spirit that is in Christ. It's through the person of the Holy Spirit that this union is created. And therefore, unlike our legal union, this one does not begin until the Holy Spirit actually comes and dwells in us. At that moment, Christ begins working through the Spirit to develop in us all that is good and right and beautiful. The fruit of the Spirit. The spiritual gifts of holiness that are given to us by Jesus, our beloved. Consider for a moment what would happen if Jesus decided to disunite himself from you. Consider what would happen if he took the spiritual union away. He removed the Holy Spirit from within you. Do you know what would happen? Just as quickly as he gave you faith, you would lose faith. Just as quickly as you you had a new heart to turn from sin, you would turn right back towards sin. You would go back to the old man. You would go back to the hell-bound person you used to be. Thank the Lord, this will never happen. Once we have been spiritually united to Christ, we are united with Him forever. And this union will never end. So now we can begin to better understand what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 12, verse 5. Those of us who are in Christ, united to him legally, spiritually, but we're also united to one another as one body and are members of one another. So let's consider how we're united together by our unity with Christ. So first... We are united as one body in our legal union with Christ. When Jesus was living and dying and rising, he was not there just representing you or just representing me. He was representing all his people. When he experienced the wrath of God, he was not bearing the punishment for my sins alone. He was bearing the punishment for every sin ever committed by every believer 
Jesus is not a polygamist. He doesn't have a whole bunch of brides. He has one bride. And we are all part of that bride made up of people who are saved from every people group every time in history. It was for the cosmic church as a whole that Christ attained righteousness in his purpose in his perfect life. When he rose from the dead, his victory over death was not for one believer or two believers, it was for all believers. And his presence in heaven right now guarantees that not just one, but that millions of Christians from every tongue, tribe, and nation, indeed every believer of all times and all places, will join him there in glory. So we are united together legally through our legal union with Christ. But then second, we are united together as one body through our spiritual union with Christ. So in a church gathering like this, let's say there's 70 different Christians in this room, each indwelt by the Spirit. How many Holy Spirits are in this room? There is one. One Holy Spirit in this room. Jesus is one. His Spirit is one. And it is one Spirit that dwells in all believers. The Spirit that works in one believer is the same as the Spirit that works in another. I'll never forget years ago speaking with a lady at another church. And we were having this conversation. It was about that book, The Prayer of Jabez, and different opinions on it. Anyway, and I, and I told her from Scripture what I thought about it. And she said, well, the Holy Spirit must be telling you something different than he's telling me. And I'm thinking, it's the same Spirit. He's not going to tell me one truth and tell you the complete opposite. Right? It's the same Spirit that works in each of us. Christians are united by something stronger than flesh and blood. Christians are united by God Himself. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He is God. He is personal God. And He unites us together. We are all one in Him. So then what does Paul mean... When he says we are individually members of one another. Note first that our unity does not diminish our individuality. We see this in the fact that we are individually members of one another. And we also see it in verse 4 that members do not all have the same function. And Paul's going to go on to emphasize that different Christians are going to have different spiritual gifts and that we're going to use them in different ways of service. So, so you're still an individual. You are still a unique person in the sight of God. But second, note that we are not only parts of Christ's body, we are parts of each other. That word members is used by Paul the way we use the word Body parts, parts. So the members of a body would include a hand and a foot and an eye and a nose. So when Paul is saying we are individually members of one another, he is making clear our identity, who we are. And it's not just who we are as an individual. Our identity is who we are in connection to other believers. Literally, it's you are a part of me. I am a part of you. A Christian that is separated from other believers is separated from a part of himself. Christians can say with absolute truthfulness, you complete me. 
And I complete you. Because that's how God has made us. We will never truly reflect the full image of Christ until we are living in godly communion with other believers. You are an incomplete person. There are parts missing of you until you are living in godly communion with other believers. The goal of your sanctification is that you will be like Jesus. But Jesus himself lives in a community, doesn't he? Jesus himself, for all eternity, has lived in communion with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is not a lone ranger. Part of the identity of Jesus Christ is found in his relationship to the Father and to the Spirit. So also, those who are being made like Jesus are to find part of their identity in community. Paul Tripp has pointed out, this world may value men like the Lone Ranger, like Superman who saved the day and then right out of town alone. But that's not what God values. In Scripture, being a loner is a sign of weakness. Do you know that? True holiness and happiness in the Bible is found in community. So Mount Hermon, here are these implications. We're almost done, but I have five implications. I'm just going to mention them, so you'll have to take them home and think about them and examine your life and apply them. But five implications. Number one, we as Christians are not like brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. The bond that we have in Christ is not an imaginary bond. This is not Paul simply using a picture. This is Paul speaking literally about what connects us. We, there really is a bond, both a real legal bond and a real spiritual bond. We are double bonded together in a way that is accurate and true and will never end. So when I say Brother Brad or Brother Dax or Brother Sherwood or Sister Deborah, uh, these are not just fun names we use. We're brothers. We're sisters. We are a family that will outlast your physical family. And we need to see each other that way. We need to conform our thinking to what the Bible tells us is true. Second implication. Even though opening up ourselves in relationships with God's people is both risky and messy, it is part of God's plan to fit us for heaven. We should pursue the kind of fellowship with one another here on earth that we will know in fullness when we go to heaven. And so though fellowship, true fellowship, not going and having a fellowship meal where we talk about the weather, but real fellowship, it's risky, it's messy. But it is part of God's plan for your life and he intends to do you good through it. And so you ought to embrace it. Third implication Since Jesus gave his life for the church, we should cherish her the way Jesus does. We should do all that we can to care for and serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be careful to do nothing that would harm the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through this text, we hear Jesus speaking to us saying, if you love me, you will love my church. Fourth implication, 
belonging to Christ's church should be counted as a higher privilege than any earthly privilege you can imagine. It is better to be the lowest person in the kingdom of heaven than to be the most powerful or richest person in this world. It is better to be, um, what, what did David say, a doorkeeper in the house of God, right, than to have all the riches of the world. Do you see your place in the, in the kingdom of God that way? Do you see that being a part of God's family is the highest privilege there is, the greatest honor, and it has been given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ if you've believed on him? We should be gladly willing to count every other honor as loss compared to the honor of knowing Christ and belonging to his people. Final implication. A life of spiritual worship to God primarily includes humbly serving other people, particularly God's people. This is what brings all of verses 1 through 8 together. Do you love Jesus? Are you stunned by the mercy of God? Do you long to show your love to the God who saved you? Do you long to show your joy in Him? To express your devotion to Him? Then God says, humble yourself and find your place of service to my people. One way that you show love to me is by caring for my wife or caring for my kids. One way I show love to you is by caring for your spouse or caring for your kids. God says, you want to worship me? You want to show me that you love what I've done for you? Love my children. Serve my children. Find your place in caring for my children. This is how we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Jesus by loving his people. And you say, okay, Justin, I want to do that. I want to find my place. I want to love the people of God for the glory of God. How do I do it? And that's the rest of Romans 12. Everything else we're going to talk about fits here. How do you love the people of God in a life of worship? Because God has been so good to you. May he bless us as we study it together. May he cause it to, to ring true in our lives and if you're here and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, see your need of him. Run to him in faith and be saved that you too can be a part of this body and have the privilege of being counted as one of the children of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.